The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information, we encourage you to visit our website, northbryantbaptist.org. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and around 1920, the city of Cincinnati began construction on its underground subway system. But if you travel to Cincinnati there today, you can't use it because they never finished it. Initially, uh, construction was slowed down because of the materials needed for World War I. The plans also proved to be less than ideal as some of the houses in the construction area began to crumble because they had foundation issues. There were politi- uh, politics that played a role and the country was barreling towards what we now call the Great Depression. And so in 1928, the construction was just indefinitely canceled. The work was abandoned, never to be completed. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe not on that large of a scale, but have you ever started something and then just said, ah, I'm not going to finish that? Or maybe you've done something halfway. A couple of weeks ago, I was cleaning off my nightstand and it was dusty, but I did not go get a dust rag and some pledge. I just wiped it off with my hand. I thought, that's good enough. Look better than it did. Listen, God doesn't do things good enough. God doesn't do things halfway. God never abandons his work. He finishes what he starts. He finishes it completely and entirely. And thankfully, that's true of his work in us. That's true of our salvation. And that's the focus of the very end of 1 Thessalonians. God will be faithful to finish his work in us when Christ returns. Before we look at the final verses of this letter, I do want us to have a sprint recap through the letter as a whole. In chapter 1, Paul expressed his thanksgiving for the Thessalonians as well as his confidence in them. He commended them for the way they received the gospel, how it changed their lives, how they became an example to others. Can you imagine what it would feel like for the Apostle Paul to tell you that you are an example? Wow. This was the only church in the New Testament that that designation was given to. In chapter 2, Paul defended his own integrity quite a bit. No matter what others may have said, Paul did not leave the city because he lacked love for the people. He reminded them of how he was uh, previously uh, imprisoned and beaten at Philippi, and yet that didn't stop him from coming to their own city and preaching the truth there. He reminded them that he worked while he was in the city, which showed uh, he was not a greedy moocher just looking for their help. He also used that very dear parental language in that chapter to describe his relationship with the people. He treated them like a nursing mother treats her babies. He treated them like a father who exhorts his children. There was a genuine connection there. He didn't abandon them when he left. And that's why he sent Timothy back to check on them, which moves us into chapter 3. Timothy went back to Thessalonica to check on the people. Once he returned to Paul, he gave a good report to him. The people in the city remained strong even though they were being afflicted and they had fond memories of the missionaries 
And hearing this report gave Paul so much encouragement, so much joy, but he still urged the people to keep on. Sometimes we say, keep on keeping on. To, to stand firm, to continue to do that even as they face persecution and let their love continue to increase. In chapter 4, he urged them to advance in their Christian walk and to be sanctified, specifically and especially to abstain from sexual immorality, which was commonplace in their city, because those sinful actions were actually connected to idol worship. And so Paul implored them not to fall back into those practices, not to engage in those sinful activities that marked their culture. They needed to be different. And he urged them to just keep loving one another, to be honest, good, upstanding citizens who, who work hard and, and just set a good example in front of others. As chapter 4 ended, he corrected some misunderstandings about the return of the Lord. Christians who die before that great event are not going to miss out on anything. When Christ returns, those who have fallen asleep in Christ will be resurrected first. Then living believers will be caught up as we meet them and we meet our Lord in the air, Paul said, and we will be with them and be with the Lord forever. Paul said, therefore comfort one another with these words. Then in chapter 5, he continued the teaching on Christ's return. He said that even though the world may not expect it, we should be ready because we're not of the night. Christ's return should not take us by surprise because we know it's coming. We should be sober. We should be alert, equipping ourselves and guarding ourselves with the armor of God that Paul talked about here in this chapter. And then he ended the letter with some rapid-fire instructions about how we should view leaders in a church, how we should treat one another, how we should always be joyful and prayerful and thankful, how we shouldn't quench the Spirit's work in our lives, how we need to hold fast to the good and get rid of the evil. That's a lot. It's a lot in especially the last two chapters of this letter. How in the world could these believers be expected to obey all of these teachings, even though they were young in the faith, even though they were suffering persecution? And what if they failed in some of their service? None of us are perfect, not even the example church of the Thessalonians. What would that mean for them when Christ returns? Well, Paul ends this great letter with the reminder of the grace and faithfulness of God. God will finish his work because he's faithful. Look at verse 23 in chapter 5. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. In verse 23, I think it's pretty fascinating that Paul refers to God as the God of peace, the, the very God of peace, when he's writing to a church suffering affliction. These people were afflicted since the moment they believed. 
They never knew what it was like to experience what we call uh, religious freedom. They were afflicted since the moment they believed. But even though this world may bring turmoil, this world may may bring trouble, we may be persecuted for our beliefs, our God is still the God of peace. And these people needed that encouraging reminder that their circumstances did not change who God is. And their circumstances did not change the peace in their hearts because of their relationship with him. If you look back at verse 13, not only did they have peace with God, but Paul urges them to be at peace among yourselves too. So when this world piles on and our lives become difficult as we serve God, we need to remember our ultimate peace with our Creator. And we need to strive for and enjoy that peace with one another as well. Having a, a, a peaceful congregation helps so much as we face the troubles of this world. And the only reason we have that is because of the very God of peace anyway. Most of verse 23, though, is not about God's peace so much. It's, it's Paul expressing what we might call a prayer wish. Something that he, he hopes that this God of peace might possibly do. He mentions sort of two things. He, he hopes and prays and wishes that God sanctifies them wholly and that he preserves them blameless at the coming of Jesus. Those two things of being sanctified and preserved blameless are not disconnected. Paul has actually discussed both of them already in the letter. In chapter 4, he taught about their sanctification. It was God's will for their lives. You may remember that the word sanctification is actually built from the word holy. So it has the idea of holiness and consecration and uh, being separate from sin, being set apart for God's service. But the word sanctification means more uh, about your lifestyle after salvation than your salvation itself. Sometimes we use the term justification to describe your right standing before God when you trust Christ. When you repent of your sins and trust Jesus as your Savior, you are justified in the presence of God. Nothing ever changes that. But sanctification is that lifelong process after justification of where we should be growing and maturing to become more and more like the God who justified us. And so now Paul brings that idea back into the picture of this lifelong process of of Christian growth and character. He also previously urged them at the end of chapter 3 to allow the Lord to increase their love to the point where they could have hearts established in blameless holiness when Christ returns. And so we learned back in chapter 3 that if we're to stand blameless before God when Christ returns, we have to love others the way he loved us. How could we stand before a loving God after having lived an unloving life and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant? And so throughout our lives... We want to see that upward trend of sanctification. We want our love for others to continually grow and increase. But we're not striving for those things alone. 
just as salvation doesn't happen apart from God, neither do uh, neither does sanctification. Neither does being preserved blameless when Christ returns. God's grace is involved in our lives even after we're saved. So think about it this way. This is a wonderful truth that should remove some pressure and anxiety as you serve God. We're never going to reach a completely perfect and sinless state of sanctification in this life, are we? We're never going to fully love always like God always loves us. But that doesn't mean we're total failures. And it doesn't mean that God won't be gracious and faithful to finish what he started in us. So we want to live sanctified lives. We want to stand blameless in love when Christ returns. Yes, but whatever is lacking will not stop God from finishing it. And so Paul prays in this verse for this comprehensive sanctification when Christ returns. His prayer, notice this word, is for us to be sanctified wholly. Some may say completely or entirely. The NIV translates this word through and through, which is a good translation here. The idea here is it's a compound word, basically has the idea of bringing something to total completion. Completely completed. God's work in your life will be completely comprehensive. He won't leave off any part of you. Paul even further emphasized this, this huge scope of God's work when he mentioned later in the verse, your whole spirit and soul and body. We're going to spend a minute here on that phrase because it's rich, it's deep. Sometimes uh, humans are described as two-part beings. Sometimes we use phrase like dual nature or something like that. We have flesh. We have spirit. There's a physical aspect to us, what we can touch and see. We have a body. But there's also this intangible aspect to our lives. We, we have emotions and thoughts, and, and, and there's this spiritual aspect as well that we can't see and touch. And there's nothing wrong with that dual division. The Bible uses that dual nature sometimes to describe us. But there's also nothing wrong with this three-part nature that Paul uses here. Maybe we would say Paul's a little more specific, maybe. He mentions three aspects of, of our being. And again, we're going to break them down a minute. But as we break these down don't lose sight of Paul's main point. Okay, let's not get so close to the bark on the trees that we, that we lose the forest. And the forest, the main point, is that absolutely no part of your being will be left untouched and unfinished by God. He doesn't do things halfway. So the first thing Paul mentions is our spirit. Our spirit is what makes humans different from animals. Animals and humans are both living creatures. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But animals do not have an eternal spirit like we do. Since we possess a spirit, we are spiritual beings. And that allows us 
the incredible opportunity to have a relationship with the spiritual God of the universe. When Jesus was talking with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he told her, God is spirit. And so this is why we have this capability of having a deep relationship with him, of enjoying fellowship with him, of, of offering him spiritual worship. Our spirit can commune with him. Paul wrote in Romans, the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The next thing Paul mentions is our soul, right? Your soul makes you who you are. It involves your feelings, your intentions, your will, your impulses, things like that. And it also means you're alive. You're a living creature. And this is something that even animals have. They are living creatures with distinct personalities. If you have two dogs, I bet they're not exactly the same. One may love to play fetch and another's a lazy bum who just sits there all day. But they're both living creatures. They're alive, individually. All the way back in the Genesis account of creation, animals and humans are described the same way as living creatures or living souls. Same Hebrew word is used for both of those expressions in Genesis. Now, don't misunderstand. It didn't mean that Adam and Eve did not possess a spirit. They did. They were different from the animals. God did make humans in his image, okay? But that's not what Mo Moses emphasized in that, uh, with those phrases in Genesis. With the phrase living creature or living soul, again, same Hebrew expression. He emphasized that these were living, distinct creatures. And that life came directly from God. So, even with all of that, if it seems like you're splitting hairs a bit, if it seems like it's, it's difficult to make that distinction between soul and spirit, if it seems tough, and, and well, how do I separate those out? Where do I draw the line? I think you're right. That may be something that only God can do. Hebrews 4.12 says this, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. So maybe it's tough for us to find where, where spirit and soul differentiate. I definitely can't take a scalpel and perform that surgery. It's nothing for God. I think sometimes we even use the term spirit and soul almost interchangeably in our language. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think we're trying to be heretical or, or dishonest or anything like that. I think it's just the way our language works sometimes. We just, we use words uh, very closely, you know, related sometimes. But technically there is a difference, even if it's a difference that only God can truly see. This should increase our trust in God and create so much amazement for his brilliance that these are deep questions about what a human is. You know, life and spirit and soul and, 
These are things that philosophers debate about, that theologians wrestle with. It's easy for God. He knows everything that makes up everything about you because he created you. And that includes our bodies. Obviously, the third thing Paul lists and the easiest one for us to understand is our bodies. That's our physical, fleshly bodies. But this is truly amazing when we think about it. When you were justified before God by faith in Christ, nothing happened to you physically. You didn't get better looking. You didn't lose weight. You didn't get more athletic. Nothing. You were still in the same aging, decaying, breaking down body that you were in before you believed, except now you were forgiven and have eternal life. And even through time, the process of sanctification hasn't magically transformed your body. How many of you want to live forever in this flesh? I know what a hundred years of aging looks like for a human. Maybe this eternal life thing isn't all it's cracked up to be. Maybe it's not as good as it seems. God has a plan, doesn't he? Don't worry. He's not going to give us this incorruptible prize to be enjoyed in a corruptible body. When Christ returns, even our physical bodies will be changed. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.21, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, very famous verses, he wrote, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. What an amazing promise to look forward to. When you trust in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You are justified forever. You stand holy before God. His spirit communes with your spirit. He indwells you. He seals you. He marks you as his child. Nothing can change that. But we still await the finished product, so to speak. Because we're still in this fleshly body, we still struggle, not just with physical pain and health as our bodies are injured and aged, but we still struggle with sin. So even our sanctification, although hopefully it's trending up, it's not total just yet. But at Christ's coming... Even our bodies will be what God intends for them to be, and we will be completely sanctified and blamelessly preserved in glorious bodies. Wow. It's been appropriately noted, I wish I came up with this, but I didn't, that Paul used this triad in sort of a descending fashion, it looks like. He started maybe from the highest level of who you are, which is your spirit. Then maybe went down to soul and then maybe finally to these old bodies we, we, you know, lug around. And if Paul meant anything by that, this progression of work in, in our lives, a progression of God's work in our lives is, is pretty amazing. It does point to the fact that our physical resurrection 
is the final piece of the puzzle, so to speak, but also it shows the comprehensive work of God in your life. There's not a single part of who you are that God will not touch and change and transform forever if you trust in his son. At least that's Paul's prayer wish. But will it actually happen? Look at verse 24 again. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Whew. <laughs> it wasn't just a hope from Paul. This wasn't just a prayer wish. It wasn't just a, you know, grasping at straws. Paul is confident that God would finish what he started because he is always faithful. He will do it. Paul wrote to the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He'll do it. So while verse 23 teaches us about this huge scope of God's work, there's not a single part of our being that will be left undone. Verse 24 teaches us how certain we can be about that. You don't have to worry because God's faithful. Yes, live sanctified. Yes, love blamelessly. But God stands at the finish line to completely complete everything he started in you. What a humbling and encouraging thought. Especially you think about these believers whose faith was born in the fires of suffering and they're, they're being afflicted maybe in different degrees because of their culture. They suffer with sanctification or trying to live for God. But this is tough. Sound familiar? Maybe wondering how they can keep up and keep all these commands that Paul just rapid-fired at them. Maybe worried about what would happen if they failed. Give God your best. We want to hear, well done, faithful servant. But he's got this. The fulfillment of our salvation does not rest with us. It rests with the ever-gracious and ever-faithful God. So as we serve him, no matter what happens in this life, look forward to that day when Christ returns. Let's quickly look at the final four verses, which are essentially Paul's farewell. Verse 25 is a desire, technically a command, for the people to pray for Paul and his missionary team. And this is, this is really comforting to me that the great apostle Paul requests prayer. There is no Christian, there's no person in this world who's so mature, so sanctified, so blameless, that he or she lacks the need and benefit of prayer. Pray for each other. Verse 26, Paul commands them to greet one another with a holy kiss. Did y'all do that this morning? Were you wrong not to? No, hopefully because you used one of our cultural greetings to let others know how you care about them, how you respect them, and how you love them. Maybe you shook their hands. Maybe you gave them a hug. Maybe you did the, you know, the holy fist bump thing that's a, that's a thing now. It's very important to greet one another warmly and lovingly. It's important. Verse 27 is extremely strong. I charge you by the Lord. 
He could have just said, read this letter. But he said, I charge you by the Lord to read this letter. Why is he so emphatic here about this? It shows the importance of this for multiple reasons. First, there's only one copy of this letter when Paul sent it. So reading it aloud meant that multiple people could hear it at once. And then also another, another uh, reason for this is that it's, it's possible and maybe probable that a lot of the members, at least some of them, were illiterate and would not be able to read it for themselves. But they could hear and they could understand it that way. It also shows Paul's concern for the entire congregation. You know, he called this congregation an example, but he didn't mention a single Thessalonian by name in this letter. But he cared for every single one of them. And they all needed to hear this truth. Reading it publicly allowed for that. And then also, it shows the importance of the letter. This was a letter that God inspired Paul to write. This wasn't just a pen pal letter. This isn't just Paul's thoughts. The Holy Spirit guided Paul to write exactly what he wrote for this group of people. And so it needed to be read in public and understood by them. In fact, the word read here in verse 27, it's actually a word that's built upon the word for knowledge. The idea is that they needed to know this and learn this through reading it. It's kind of neat, a neat word. It's important to read the Bible together publicly because you can learn that way. That's why we have scripture reading during our worship services. It's not just a, you know, so there's not awkward silence when the, when the young people come up to take up offering. That's why we have our annual Nehemiah 9 service in the fall where we have a service that's more dedicated to just a lengthier public reading of scripture. That's why I read a portion of scripture when we have our business meetings. We could have shorter meetings if Brother Matt would just quit reading the Bible. But then we wouldn't hear from God that night. And you know what? We've read this letter together publicly. It's just taken us a few months to do it. We've done it little by little. I hope and pray that we've learned a lot. I may have mentioned it in a sermon or maybe I was talking with someone. I can't remember, but I, I said one reason I chose to preach through 1 Thessalonians is because it checks a lot of boxes. There's so much in here. Some of about the relationship between a preacher and the people uh, to, to teachings about Christ's return. There are practical applications about how we're to live, how we're to treat one another. There's just so much in here. But overall... This letter should encourage us to remember that in the ancient city of Thessalonica, a wicked, immoral, idolatrous seaport metropolis, God was at work. There was a church in that city, a church that became an example for others because of the way they believed the word with joy, even though it meant their suffering, the way they spread the gospel, even though it meant affliction. And as our own country grows increasingly immoral and wicked, my prayer for North Bright is that we will be like that ancient church where somebody can look at us and say, in the middle of a decaying society, God is still at work. With His grace, we too can be a good church. We can be an example to others, to other people, 
to other churches. And we're not going to be sinless, perfect. Not individually, not as a congregation. But aren't you glad God doesn't just take his hand and dust off the nightstand and say, that's good enough. Aren't you glad he doesn't just abandon his projects like the city of Cincinnati? God doesn't do things halfway. He finishes what he starts, and that includes his work among us. Take a deep breath and rest in the fact that not one ounce of who you are will fall through the hands of your creator. Now, if you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, please do that this morning. You will be justified forever in the presence of God. And when Jesus comes again, God will finish what he started. He will completely complete everything about you. Until then, I pray that we're a people in a church that serve him faithfully, that spread the gospel, that live sanctified, that love others, that give our best for him, not in a legalistic fashion, but because we know we're in the hands of our gracious God who sent his son for our redemption and who will send him again to reign forever. He's faithful. He'll do it. The final words that the Thessalonians would hear as they read this letter aloud is verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's stand. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, we're so thankful that you, do, that you do not do things halfway and that you finish what you started. And we pray for the soon return of our Lord and Savior when you will completely complete all of those who have trusted in Jesus. I pray that you will be with us as a church, Lord. Help us to please you. Be with us individually. Help us to live lives that please you. And if there's someone who's lost, God, we pray for their salvation before it's too late. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.